Mysteries to Die For is sponsored by Down and Out Books. The featured new release this week is from Down and Out's imprint, All Due Respect, The Ackerman Motel, Apartments Per Week, by Pablo Stare. Lying low in a cold water flat, petty crook Trevor English inadvertently discovers the truth behind a violent crime. Taking no action against the perpetrator, he is nevertheless accused of holding the information over their head. And despite his claims of non-involvement, Trevor soon finds he must either play the fall guy to the crime or pay out somebody else's blackmail to keep his own past from being raked up. The Ackerman Motel, Apartments Per Week by Pablo Destere, is now available through Down and Out's website, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and all your favorite booksellers. Welcome to Mysteries to Die For. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of murder, mystery, and mayhem. Some episodes will be my own. Others will be classics that help shape the mystery genre we know today. These are arrangements, which means instead of word-for-word readings, you get a performance meant to be heard. Jack and I perform these live, front to back, no fakes, no breaks, no retakes, unless it's really bad and then he makes me start all over. This is season one. This season comes from my book, Widow's Run, which was published in 2019 by Down and Out Books. If you love clever, sharp-edged mysteries and thrillers, check out Down and Out on the web. Today's episode builds from the previous. You have to listen in order for the story to make sense. Start with the episode called, What a Lovely Corpse You Have, and catch up to us from there. We'll be here for you. We've listed a cast of characters in the show notes to help you keep track of the players. To recap, our hero, Diamond, has faked her death, burying the mainstream, suburban professional she was to resurrect her CIA cover. Why? She needs to do what the police won't, investigate her husband's death. In the last episode, Diamond returned to the States to look for the money behind the hit. In the middle of interviewing her husband's successor, Dr. Julie Liu, she realizes she missed something, something big, an accomplice. Before she can get back to her team, she's pulled into a medium-speed chase where the prize is the petite Dr. Liu. Suspecting the kidnapping attempt and Gabrielle's deaths are connected, Diamond has to find a safe house for the professor before she can get to work. Today's story is about dotting the I's and old habits. This is episode 10. Oh, hell no. You are batshit crazy if you think I'm taking her home. Isn't it bad enough I have a teenager slash golden retriever wagging his tail whenever I walk in the door? I drove Julie to a nearly respectable hotel in a place no one would think to look for a professor of agriculture. It was just up the road from the hideaway, that oh, not-so-glorious bar from episode 3. 
I took a circuitous route and checked for the tail and, as chance would have it, drove by the house of Montgomery Rand, where he once dared to fuck me in his post-pubescent genius slacker tone. The motivation I created for him had reduced his wood frame house to black ash, increasing the adjacent property values by at least 10%. As I rolled down the street, guess who was sitting on a porch smoking? Inspiration struck and I swung into the driveway. Stay, I ordered Julie. Then I left the car. Monty, looking good. Everything back in working order? Monty narrowed his eyes, his expression wary as I walked up the walk. Recognition was a cold slap in the face. You. Me. Nice place. You live here alone? The smell of weed and mild body odor met me at the steps. My uncle lives here and he's out of town. Don't burn it down. He'll never let me in another house. There was a healthy amount of fear in his voice. No worries, I said. I just need a little favor. Why would I do you a favor? Call it fire insurance. You'll get paid for your time. I just need you to babysit. I whistled like a construction worker and waved Julie to come out. She did and Monty's doughy chin hit the porch. I could see the appeal. Julie was delicate, pretty. Here's the deal, Monty. One week at most, she stays inside. Job pays $200 a day. Julie hurried from the car to the house. I opened the front door and ushered her inside. Monty was less enthusiastic as he walked through the door. What kind of trouble is she in? He whispered the question as if Julie wasn't standing just 10 feet away and couldn't hear him. No trouble as long as she stays out of sight. He looked at the cash that I had handed him. His genius brain weighed the evidence. Evidential, eventually, he nodded. Julie Lou, meet Montgomery Rand. Monty's agreed to hide you for a few days. This will be easy. You'll need to call in sick to the university. Make it something good, something that takes a good week to get over. Stay inside. You need something, Monty will go get it. I turned to Monty. Stay clear of her work, her apartment, anywhere she's known. You don't know who's watching. Is there a room she can use? I, I want to talk to her before I leave. He nodded, the one at the top of the stairs. I led Julie up the narrow staircase. The house was cut from the same mold as the one that burnt down. It was in better shape and cleaner. This house was a home, complete with pictures and mementos of a family man. The room at the top was small and furnished in five-year-old girl. The pink wells held thumbtack posters of unicorns and princesses and dancing flowers. It's hard to be afraid in a room like this. Nauseous? Yes. Afraid? No. I don't understand what's happening. Julie sank onto the bed neatly, made with a pony comforter. Who are you? Like I said, I'm an investigator. I'm looking into the deaths of professors Gabriel Rubczynski and Francisco Thalen. As you know, both died a year ago at the summit in Rome. My team and I are certain the two deaths are connected and related to Professor Rubczynski's research. Julie froze, dumbstruck. She didn't move, she didn't blink. Eventually she swallowed and then opened her mouth to speak. You know this? You have evidence? Yes, I know this and I'm working on the evidence. Who do you work for? Let's just call me a freelance investigator. She drew her lower lip between her teeth and began to bite at it. She was so small, barely 110 pounds soaking wet. 
In the child's room, her age and inexperience showed through. I covered her clenched hands, squeezing encouragingly. I will get to the bottom of this. It's what I do. Her gaze fell away, resting on the hands clasped tightly on her lap. I believe you will. I left Julia Monty with the voicemail number in the case of emergency and then raced home, using technology to get a head start on work. I left Ian Black a voicemail just to call me back. His call would be routed to my cell. My next call was to Dixon. He didn't answer, but he did text. My car read it to me. I'm taking my trigonometry final. Damn high school. But I had skills of my own. I needed to rescreen the security video and read through all the emails between Buford and Gabrielle and then book a plane ticket to bumfuck Egypt. Is that what they still call the middle of nowhere these days? In my fancy new media center, I re-watched the security footage. When Carlo and I first viewed the film, we were missing one vital piece of information. What Hugo Franzetti looked like. No way Hugo drove the car. He served the poison cocktail. Even if the car was idling in front of the hotel, there just wasn't time to get into the driver's seat and hit Gabriel. Plus, he would have been seen. Somebody would have noticed a uniformed waiter racing into the street, jumping in the car, and then hitting someone. The report said the car came out of nowhere. Not a rare thing in Rome. I backed up the video and played it again. This time, I watched Hugo. He delivered the tainted drink. He crisscrossed the room, full tray, empty tray, full tray, empty tray. On the edge of the screen, he paused, hand to his head. He was on the phone. Then he resumed working. Two more trips between the bar and the flock of customers, and then he disappeared through a door. One minute later, he came back into view, hands empty and wearing a jacket over his uniform. He didn't speak to anyone as he crossed the foyer and walked out the door. Gabriel followed less than 10 seconds later. How could I have missed it the first time? Sloppy, sloppy. The most important case of my career, of my life, and I was screwing it up. I would have kicked my own ass, but I'm not double-jointed. I needed to work smart. I called Carlo Giancarlo. Ciao, my American diamond. You have missed Carlo? Not in the mood, Carlo. I need you to look at the driver again. Hugo, he wasn't driving. I caught him up on what I saw. Somebody was sitting close by with the car running. Somebody he could call. Talk to Valentina. Find out who Hugo hung with. Find me the driver, and God have mercy if it was her. I will see to her immediately. Good? Good enough. Tell me, have you spoken to my Uncle Ian? Ian was not the easiest name with an Italian accent. He said it like his mouth was full of marbles, and he couldn't quite get his lips around the back-to-back vowels. No, I I tagged him an hour ago, but he hasn't called me back. He hasn't returned my calls either. It's not like him. At least he would text me, but nothing since yesterday. Huh, that is strange. It gave me pause. I mean, after all, we're all creatures of habit, and the first clue something was amiss was often breaking of said habit. Maybe he's just onto something hot, I said. I have to go out of town, but if he hasn't been in contact by the time I get back, I'll go hunt him down. Va bene. I will call tomorrow with progress. Ciao, Diamond. Bye. I mean, ciao. Ciao. Next, I went to flights. My destination? Buford Winston of Tulsa, Oklahoma. I don't like booking my own flights. Too damn many choices, and not one of them matched what I wanted. 
I searched and searched again, and as impossible as it seems, you can only go from Washington, D.C. to Tulsa in the morning. I didn't want to go in the morning. I wanted to go this evening, but unless I was making the 18-hour drive, which I wasn't, it looked like I was stuck until morning. Booked it, paid for it, moved on. The twin 60-inch screens displayed the emails between Gabrielle and Buford in a font Helen Keller could read. The first came two weeks after Gabrielle secured the grant. It was friendly enough. Congratulations, blah, blah, blah. Excited about opportunities, blah, blah, blah. Sure we can come to an equitable agreement. Ha! <laughs> From day one, all Buford cared about was equity, liquidity, and profitability. The triple itties. There were hundreds of exchanges over the years. Just a few each month, Buford initiated the contact and Gabrielle responded and Buford closed it. The message were civil, even when they were stridently different in places of opinion. Several emails alluded to voice-to-voice -voice conversations. A few made plans to meet in person. Everything was nice and calm and so damn polite my teeth ached. But I wouldn't be fooled by a wolf in sheep's clothing. Ilsa witnessed Buford verbally dressing down an Italian cat. Julie quivered as she spoke about being intimidated by Buford's loud and over-the-top behavior. No, I needed to talk to the man behind the curtain. How to do it? So my first instinct was to piss him off, burn away the smooth front of a man in a fiery flare of temper. Of course, if he was pissed at me, he wasn't likely to talk to me. I needed him pissed at somebody else. I needed to be the messenger he not only didn't want to kill, but he wanted to confide in. I think Jessica Fielding is getting an extended performance. Who's Jessica Fielding? Bounded to my feet, sliding the knife out of my ankle sheath and ready to attack. Dixon left backwards. Whoa, that was fast, Diamond. Like lightning flashed. Like blink of an eye fast. Can you teach me to be fast like you? Because, you know, that was spectacular. It was on the tip of my tongue to say he had to grow out of his puppy face first. Too much energy, feet too big for his frame. But I didn't want to crush him. He'd had enough of that in his short life. We'll see, Dix. How did the trick final go? I don't know. Do you have anything to eat? The boy ate like a mammoth. I think there's still cereal left. Sweet! And he was gone. I followed at a more human pace, then leaned against the doorframe as he poured half a box of cereal into a mixing bowl. Did you know the answers to the questions on the final? Oh sure, that stuff's easy. We small talked through what he called a snack and I called diabetes, and then went into my office. We settled in front of the ever-growing media center, and we got down to business. So here's what I don't get, Dixon said. I hear you saying that Doc and Buford didn't get along, but none of these emails are, you know, they're not bad. The ones from his assistant lady, the ones in the crybaby file, they're way worse than Buford's. That is the genius of Buford Winston, Dix. The man is slicker than a greased pig. Buford acts like a cultured cowboy when he is really pig shit. The point is, no matter how friendly or professional Buford's emails are, the man was determined to use Gavriel's research to line his pockets, with or without Gavriel's cooperation. Dixon and I worked well together. I had to explain a few terms, a few concepts he hadn't come across yet in his young life, but he paid attention and he learned fast. 
Gavriel had become obsessed, like only a scientist can, with quinoa after a trip to Bolivia. The fact that it was 5,000 years old and was still consumed today blew his scientific mind. When he found out even back then there were hundreds of varieties of plant and all roots, leaves, and seeds, they were all consumable. They left zero waste. Quinoa was a complete and balanced protein and it had antioxidants and it was a good source of some very important minerals. Well, Gabriel about wet his scientific panties. Then came the pièce de résistance. Quinoa had a remarkable tolerance to different growing conditions. Thin cold air, hot sun, little rainfall, salty or sandy soil. Name your adverse condition and there was a quinoa variety that thrived in it. Gabriel started growing it in our suburban DC neighborhood. If anyone was foolish enough to ask him about it, well, they were treated to the above lecture on quinoa, the long version. In the beginning, we ate quinoa about once a week, but as his obsession grew, so did its appearance on our dinner plate. It's not like I didn't like quinoa. It's like this. I went to a private school, K-12, back in the day when plaid filled the school girl's wardrobe. I've been out of school for over 13 years and I still won't wear plaid. Can't look at this stuff without feeling claustrophobic. I'm the same way with quinoa. Guttural cry of a feral cat reached me and I went for my knife again. What the hell is that? Dixon sheepishly examined his oversized feet. Do not tell me you brought a cat into my house. He blushed. Is my stomach. The time in the corner of the screen said six o'clock. Time flies when you're reminiscing about quinoa. Come on, I said. I know a place. The mom and pop Italian restaurant didn't have a name on the front of the building. The old sign fell apart, leaving just red and green stripes of an awning to indicate where the best meal in the neighborhood could be found. Dixon bounced as we walked down the street. The kid acted like he'd never been taken out for a meal. He grinned ear to ear, saying hello to anyone brave enough to make eye contact. We sat at a table in front of the big picture window. The world outside appeared as if in one huge, high-definition television screen. It was fun being out with Dixon. He had no filter. If he thought it, he said it. If he wondered about it, he asked. If he didn't agree, he argued. Our conversation started with breadsticks and ended with a slurp of pasta and the Treaty of Versailles. You figure out how we got there. My phone chimed with the text. Oh. What's wrong? Dixon craned over the table to read my screen. Nothing, it's just the airline confirming my flight is on time tomorrow. What were you expecting? Ian? He should have called back by now. I checked my texts and messages again, but still no Ian. Yeah, I talked to him the night when you were coming home from Italy. He wanted to talk to you, but you were somewhere in the air. Man, he helped me with so many things. He knows really cool shit. Then he said he had to go. He said he would call me back, and I thought it'd be like 10 minutes, but he didn't. Well, that's a news flash. You're saying Ian called looking for me? Well, yeah, he said something about phones and numbers and not having time to wait. I leaned forward until I could really look Dicks in the eyes. Think hard. Did he give you any clue to where he was going? Dixon tightened his mouth and his face stilled with seriousness. He said he needed to talk to you. He said something about an order. 
and he would do what he could to keep you out of it. Keep me out of it? Again, dead woman, what was there to keep me out of besides hell? He say anything else, Dix? Dixon shook his head. He was interrupted. He's, he said he'd call back, but he hasn't. He was out of character for Ian, tripping yellow flags and warning sirens. We're going for a ride. The last piece of bread went down Dixon's gullet while I paid the bills. We walked back to my car, him bouncing like an unleashed puppy, which had me thinking. Did I really want to take a 17-year-old to Ian Black's house? I stopped in my tracks, figuring out the fastest route past my building and then to the city. Dixon leapt in front of me and planted his big paws on my shoulders. You're not dumping me! Dix, you gotta understand, the world Ian and I live in, it's dangerous. He's gone off the grid when he wasn't planning to. Well, how do you know he wasn't planning to? Think, Dix. You said he was interrupted and he would call you back. You didn't think he meant in a week, did you? His brows pressed down into thinky mode. I thought, like, maybe 15 minutes. Soon as he got done being interrupted. Right. Carlo expected the same thing. If Ian was planning to dis disappear, he wouldn't have said anything. So let's go. He galloped. Yes, galloped another two f storefronts and then stopped. What are you waiting for? Dix, man, I can't take you with me. Oh, I felt like I was crushing his puppy spirit. His face fell and his eyes went all sad. Then the little shit grabbed my keys out of my hand and ran. Oh, no, you did not. Dixon's long, loping gait ate up ground faster than he ate pasta. I pumped my legs hard. Those three slices of pizza were working against me, but like hell, some snot-nosed twerp was going to beat me. One, two, three, and I leapt on his back. Give me my keys. I locked my legs around his bony hips. Take me with you. He spun in a circle, my weight carrying him onto a grassy knoll. What are you, suicidal? My arm wrapped around his throat, sleeper hold. I just want to help. He croaked like a frog as he ran me into a tree. I relinquished my grip on his throat, grabbing onto the tree and, using my legs, brought him down. You want to help? Give me my goddamn keys. Excuse me, young man, do you need help? An octogenarian stood on the very edge of the concrete-bordered curb, a cane in one hand, a purse in the other, and a very disapproving glare on her face. Next to her was her sister, a spry 75-ish. Dixon locked eyes with me and smiled. Yes, ma'am. I dove for the keys buried in his outstretched hand as a barrage of old lady whoop-ass hailed down. Damn it! Stop it right now! Leave that young man alone! The sister said with authority. Ex-school teacher? Ex-prison warden? Ouch! The plastic corner of the pleather purse rang my bell. Self-preservation dictated I abandon the keys and seek shelter immediately. Stop it! I rolled to my back and used my feet. The best damn defense was a relentless offense. Fine, you want to play? The next swing of the brick-laden purse met my foot. I snagged it, locking it down while I kicked with the other foot. Yeah, I kicked an old lady. Dixon! He ran while my back was turned. I'll get the car and pick you up. I flipped back into a sprinter stance, but my legs went out from under me and purses came down hard on my ass. You run, young man. We'll hold her here. Dixon! I glanced up to see him running, roaring with laughter as he reached the parking garage and disappeared. You should be ashamed of yourself, a woman your age chasing a boy. It's disgraceful. The elder sister pitched forward on her hips, wagging a finger in my face. 
Younger sister clucked her tongue and took a final half-hearted swipe. It's those feminists. First they burn their bras and then they straddle boys in the park. Whew, I gotta sit down. On my feet and out of range, I pulled my hair out. Are you too crazy? You don't go accosting people with fake designer purses? I twisted my arm, looking at the throbbing spots turning into bruises. What do you have in those bricks? Bibles, the younger sister said. Never doubt the power of prayer, the elder added. Tires squealed and my car took the corner out of the garage on two wheels. The car stopped on a diamond ten feet from the sisters. Dixon's grinning face appeared in the open window. Need a ride? I pointed to the sisters. Stay! I sidestepped to the car, my eyes never straying from the Bible wumpers. Soon as I closed the door, Dixon leaned out the window. Thank you! Are you certain you're safe with her? The younger sister asked. Yeah, she's not as bad as she thinks she is. Insult! On top of injury! Just drive, Dixon. Turn right and head down to the docks. KK. He rolled past the Italian restaurant to the intersection. Left here? Yeah. We came to a very complete stop in the intersection before turning very sharply. The speedometer hovered under the posted speed limit. Didn't figure you for a by-the-book driver, Dix, especially after you peeled out of the garage. Dixon's gaze flickered to the rearview mirror. Well, I figured I'd better be legal on account of I don't exactly have my driver's license. Fingers pressed my twitching eye. What does don't exactly mean? I have my learner's permit. I did all the classroom work and started on the 60 hours of supervised driving. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. How many hours have you completed? 20, technically. And how many actually? Four. My dad wouldn't take me out, but he was drunk and he signed off on the others. He thought he was signing up for Jelly of the Month Club. He turned those puppy dog eyes on me. You'll sign off on this, right? You qualify as supervising. Oh, and if it's dark on the way back, it'll count toward 10 hours of my night driving. And I thought life would be easier when I was dead. So will you sign off? Will you? He looked like a little boy hoping a friend would come out and play. What the hell? I mean, one of my aliases has to hold a driver's license. Make the next right and take the on-ramp. Tell me you've driven on a highway. Sure I have. Well, not technically, but I've done it hundreds of times in Grand Theft Auto. 20 minutes later, 10 horn blares, 5 curse outs, we rolled down an industrial street frequented by rats and river vermin. The street was wide to accommodate the daily truck migration. Headlights reflected off glass fragments pushed against the well-used curbs. The sidewalks on either side floated above the street, broken and dislocated. Beyond were warehouses and flex spaces and reclaimed artist pads. Our destination was the dark building on the river side of the street. Pull over here, I told Dix. He put his turn signal on, coasted to our right, and bounced off the curb. Sorry, he said. It was closer than it looked. What are we looking at? He curled his chest over the steering wheel looking out the windshield. It's Ian Black's home. Three floors of reinforced concrete walls and bulletproof glass. There was a ridiculous amount of square footage in the structure Ian called both home and office. I was jealous the first time I saw it. He had a 360 degree view of the surrounding street and an escape chute off the back to a hidden platform behind his dock. It was a sweet setup and inspired my own takeover of a building. 
how are we going to get in? Do you have, like, rope and grappling hook? Dixon rubbed his hands together in anticipation. I rolled my eyes. We're going in the front door. Oh, okay, well. Yeah, disappointed he got out of the car. I chased after him again. Dixon, stop. Ah, Diamond, don't make me wait in the car. I can be helpful. It's, you know, it's a big place, right? So two hearts are better than one, right? He hung his head low, his eyes on my shoes. Please? Damn, I regretted bringing him. I would work faster alone, and I wouldn't have to worry about anyone. Okay, Dix, the rules are, one, you stay behind me, and two, you run like hell if I say to. No waiting for me, no trying to help. Listen to me, Dixon, when I tell you I'm trained for this. Are you hearing me? Yes, 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 he hopped like a pogo stick. All I could do was shake my head. Let's go. Ian's security system was state-of-the-art. The doors lock, use a passcode. Any breach of the doors or windows activated a blowhorn of an alarm and flooded the perimeter with lights strong enough for a stadium. The stairs inside were rigged with pressure sensors. Stepping on them without deactivating the system would make you like Peter Plan flying across the storage space. I had the code from Gabriel's poker days. The penthouse was a favorite place for debauchery in general. I punched in the code. The damn light stayed red. I tried it again and same result. Sometime in the last year, Ian changed his code. Shocker. Shit, we're not getting in, I said. I pounded on the door. Nada. Let me try. Dixon shouldered me out of the way. Yeah, yeah, I know this model. Last summer, I was into security systems. The kid was an enigma wrapped in a puzzle tied with genius. Into security systems? You know, hacking into them. They look tough because of the interface, but it's just another computer. Once you learn how to talk to it, it'll do what you want. He used my car keys to pry off the cover. Seconds later, the door hatch, the door latch slid open. Inside was too dark to see your own hand. The weak light of dust couldn't penetrate the tinted windows. No problem. I turned on the lights. Should you do that? Dix asked. What? Turn on the lights? We aren't trying to sneak up on Ian. To prove my point, I called out, Ian! It's Diamond and Dixon! You hear? The first floor stretched a long way. Bare concrete, stained with oil, time, and things better not known, was slippery underfoot. Each floor of Ian's humble abode rounded to 10,000 square feet. The ground floor was an acre or two of garage. Ian had 10 vehicles, three motorcycles, two boats, and an ATV arranged around a roll-up door. Yellow tape on the floor marked the designated parking spots for each vehicle. Dixon followed me across the floor. The 9mm I'd taken from my car hung at my side. I wasn't expecting trouble. I could see nearly all of the room. I took a knee and looked under the vehicles. Dixon did the same. I don't see anything, he said. This is the cleanest garage I've ever been in. All the cars and stuff are here, aren't they? I nodded. The tenant for each yellow square was present and accounted for. Place for everything and everything in its place, I said. Let's go upstairs. Three staircases and an elevator led to the second floor. One was near the main entrance and was officially the front stairs. The black metal staircase was four feet wide with stone steps. Its twin was tucked into the corner behind the boat. The back stairs was off limits to all but a select few. Yours truly accepted. In the center of the waterside wall was the elevator, and the third staircase crept 
around the elevator like an anaconda, twisting and rising until it disappeared into the patterned ceiling. I led the way back to the front stairs. This door was least likely to be locked and would put me in position to see the space laid out in front of me. Ian's home felt empty, but I wasn't going to take chances with Dick's. I motioned him to a position away from the second floor door. Stay here until I call clear. If I tell you to run, you get out of here, back to the car, and away from the river. Go to the nearest police station and wait there. If I don't call you in one hour, bring them in, guns drawn. You got it? His face fell. Understanding had dawned. Don't go up there, Diamond. Call the cops now. He still didn't understand who I was. I'll be fine, Dixon. You make sure you are. Gun cradled in a two-handed position, I soundlessly ascended the stairs. The door to the second floor was open. This was Ian's office. The space was divided into six distinct areas by furniture, equipment, and more floor tape. Here again, there were few hiding places, which made it obvious we weren't the first to come through. Shit. I went back to the door. Come on up, Dix. Did you find him? Holy crap, someone was pissed. It was an understatement. The office space looked like boggle dice after being given a good tumble. The desks sat on their sides or tops and legs of chairs poked into the air. Paper covered the floor like confetti. Back to the front stairs and up to the third floor. The place felt dead, empty. Whatever happened here was done. Dixon, come on up. His entrance was slow this time, looking before he leapt to the space next to my side. The third floor wasn't in any better shape than the second. Do, do you think whoever did this, you know, like, got Ian? Kid was a mind reader. Nobody gets in here without Ian knowing about it, I said. We did. Point and counterpoint. Ian didn't get where he is by being stupid. If someone came in while he was here, he knew it. He'd be ready. He'd have a plan and a backup plan. I completely believed the crap I spewed. I had to, because the alternative was, stay behind me, Dix. We're going room to room. We began in the kitchen. One hell of a mess, but no people breathing or otherwise. Next was the living area. A screen designed for a theater dominated the interior wall, where two rows of man-sized couches sat in homage. Bullets had ripped a line across the soft leather. Half bath, clear, no damage really, but there wasn't much to brace unless you had a thing for porcelain. Middle of the floor was the game room. Pool table, card table, bar, all matched with green felt and chocolate brown leather trim. A sharp knife had been dragged across the leather while angry stab wounds marred the soft felt. The door to the master bedroom was wide open, the sun set casting shadows that didn't belong. Dixon, don't... Is she dead? His voice trembled. I didn't answer the rhetorical question. The woman laid across Ian's bed, her head off the end at an uncomfortable angle. She was very naked and totally dead. I had to walk to the river side of the room to see her face. A single gunshot to the forehead had thrown her across the bed. Following the dictates of gravity, blood had drained to the lowest point, her head. Don't come over here. Is this your first dead body? Second, he said, but the first one wasn't naked. Look at the chair. Is that her blood? Grabbing the edge of the bedspread, I pulled it over her, covering her body before following Dixon's gaze. The upholstered chair aimed to the television screen was stained with blood. Whose blood? 
Well, that I need a laboratory for an answer. I wouldn't bet on it being our dead lady. The only visible cut on her body was the one on her forehead, and everything I saw said she died where she fell. Probably not. Do you think it's Ian's? The scene began playing in my mind like a movie. The front bell rings. Ian used a security system and he recognized the woman. He let her in and one thing led to another. Either he forgot to reactivate the system or she deactivated it. While they were getting busy in the bedroom, enter our shooter. He shot the woman and got busy working Ian over. Or maybe he started working Ian over and then the woman objective and pow, objection overruled. He went back to Ian, but something happened. If he has Ian, why destroy the apartment and the office? I asked. It takes time and it takes anger to do this. If you have Ian, why not just leave? Maybe there was more than one of them, Dick said. Maybe there were even three or four and downstairs and up here at the same time. Dixon's gaze flickered to the body. Seeing what the blanket hid, his face became an unhealthy green undertone. Bathroom, Dick's now. He covered his mouth as he ran and bounced immediately out. There's another one in the bathtub. Another body. Is it Ian? I didn't wait for his answer. I raced past him to see for myself. Not Ian, but an ugly man in black with knuckles raw to bleeding. His head had connected with the bathtub spigot and stuck there. He considerately bled down the drain. The bathroom resembled ground zero for a World War III battle. Bullets and casings and shards of porcelain littered the marble floor. Streaks of blood stood out in sharp contrast to the white tiles. There was more, if you understood what you saw. The streak brushed across two tiles and ended abruptly before the tattered laundry basket. The basket was empty. I jiggled it, lifted it, shook it. It was just a basket. Then I noticed one tile was raised just a fraction of an inch above the others. I stepped on it and one of the white panels opened up, revealing a chute. Dixon? Yeah? He leaned in just enough to see me. Don't follow me. I sat on the floor, scooting until my legs were in the black abyss. Wait, wait! What should I do? Stay by your phone, I said, and shoved off. So I took Gabriel to a water park once. They didn't have him when he was a kid, and he'd been too old once he arrived here. Well, my too old man loved it, racing ahead of children to line up for the two brides. His favorites were the enclosed ones, completely black so you had no idea what was coming. Add cobwebs and, quote, pellets, and you know where I am. 45 degree slide, sharp turn to the right, drop, sharp turn to the right, drop. With each drop, my stomach rolled. With each turn, my head felt like a pinball. My legs hit something hard and I spilled out onto a rough concrete mat. It took a second for the marbles to stop spinning and my eyes to adjust to the dim light. Nice of you to join me. The voice was more air than sound. Ian's lips were cracked, a bloody towel bunched under his head, his body hidden beneath a mylar blanket. He tried to push to sitting with hands bound by plastic cords, but he fell back to the concrete. The blanket dropped off his shoulders and pulled around his bare hips. Bruises the size of fists littered his chest and ribs. There wasn't a part of his face and upper body that was free of abrasions. Must have been one hell of a party, I said to him as I dug my phone out. Dixon? You're alive! Thank God you're alive. I heard you scream and I thought, and I thought... Between the gasps, Dixon cried. I 
did not scream. And if I did, it wasn't my fault. Even Indiana Jones would have screamed if he was getting a face full of spider webs, spiders, and the things spiders have in spider webs. It was just a weird echo, dicks. Maybe my gun scraping against the pipe. Call an ambulance. I have Ian. Ian shook his head adamantly. No, no ambulance, just you. He closed his eyes, his body sagging to the concrete. All I need is you. Fuck. Dix, move the car to the front entrance. Stowing my phone away, I pulled out a knife and cut the ties. Ian swayed as I tugged on him. Suck it up, I said. You're not hurt that bad. I snapped out the lie to keep him conscious. I hope you don't expect me to play nurse. I already got plans. Well, that's it for this episode of Mysteries to Die For. In two weeks, we'll pick up the story with the next chapter, Buford Winston Loves His Ass, by far my favorite title of the entire book. If you enjoyed our twist on storytelling, help spread the word by telling a friend or leaving a review. For less than the cost of Julie Lou's beef tenderloins, you can join our body back brigade. You'll receive bonus content for our thanks. Mysteries to Die For was written by T.G. Wolfe. Music and production are by Jack Wolf. Episode art is by Shannon Leahy. Widow's Run was written by T.G. Wolf, published by Down and Out Books. Until next time, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Now let's open the French doors and join Jack in the piano room. Hello. Hi there. Yeah, I like that chapter. I like all the twists and turns of it. Yes, it is a very fun chapter. So this kind of chapter was inspired by the idea that you tend to see what you want to see. And so it isn't until, um, you know, Diamond is talking with Julie, which was in our last episode, that she realizes that Hugo couldn't have been the guy driving the car. I think so many times, whether you're trying to do something like change a faucet or go someplace you've never been before, you kind of enter with preconceived notions that you don't even realize you have, and and they can just be completely wrong. Do you ever run into that sort of thing? Yeah, totally. Like when you go to a different country. <laughs> when did it happen to us in different countries that, that stuck, sticks in your memory? Well, I was taught that in like French and Italian schools that they're taught English, which is why my... Uh, brain said, oh, well, when we go over there, we won't have a problem. People will know English. No. No. Uh, people who are supposed to know English, they know English. The tour guide, she knows English. The waiter, no. Not a thing. They're just pointing at menus and, you know, trying translating because between American and Italian and some... 12-year-old who doesn't know what he wants in the first place. <laughs> Are you kidding? Your brother always knew what he wanted. Cheese pizza. That is true. Margarita pizza. Yeah. Once we learn how to say pizza margarita, he was easy to order for. Yeah. It was you that was hard because you're an adventurous eater and were willing to eat things that weren't just spaghetti and pizza. It all was just spaghetti and pizza. That's why I was willing to eat it. No, it wasn't. It was just a version of spaghetti and pizza. Do you remember the dumplings that you had in that first restaurant in Tuscany that were that were essentially green because they think they were a pesto it was like basil and olive oil and cheese yes I remember the green dumplings 
And they were delicious. They were great. They didn't look great, but they were great. <laughs> they were great. <laughs> you know, you're right, though, that the way that other countries get depicted through sort of our American TV system gives you a very wrong idea of oh, what yeah. to expect. It was very strange when people, you know, didn't live back when uh, they didn't live normal life like it was still the 18th century and Rome ruled everything. It was weird. <laughs> I don't know exactly what you mean by that, but certainly we were in places that were much older than anything that we've ever walked into here. I think the thing that entertains me the most is just how you realize that there's more than one way to do the same thing. Like going into a grocery store. You know, or a gas station. Or gas station is even a better example. We spent how long trying to get gas? Oh, it had to be a good 20 minutes. Did we even get it? Or did we give up? We had to use cash. Oh. We had to use cash. We could not figure out how to use the credit card system. Yeah. So. That was pretty fun. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's always Venice, the fact that everything is water. Yeah, and there were no cars. We we liked Venice. We did. But nonetheless, we had to take water taxis everywhere. Pretty great. Do you remember that when we were in Venice, the, the one tour guide taught us how to basically navigate the city using an old school compass? Yes, I do remember that because it was up to us to go places based off of like it was just south of the lion statue or something yeah. and it was like we had to figure out where it was based off of a compass and using the sun mm -hmm. <clears throat> and i hated it because i couldn't figure out which side east and west was based off the sun i was gonna say i don't remember that part I re she gave you the compass and you navigated us from plaza to plaza from piazza to piazza but apparently it was more traumatic to you than yes. than it was to us i thought that was pretty cool no it was stressful man i had to uh use the sun at one point because she made us use the sun she was like trying to show us what direction to go in yeah you do realize that she knew where she was so even though we felt lost she was not lost i was 12. <laughs> that is true you were 12. <laughs> yeah i kept trying to use my uh phone and you know like my google maps and stuff and that does not work in venice no, it does not. <laughs> the buildings are too tall and the walkways are too narrow so breaking out a good old compass uh, was the way to go. And I thought that was fun. I'd never been in a place where you could do that. And, you know, you had a map and you just would follow the compass from one plaza to the next plaza. And, I mean, we walked over the entire city that way. Mm -hmm. I sometimes forget that Victor, my brother, was like nine. Yeah, he was little. Yeah. I forget that all the time. That's why he had the job of finding the lion heads, and he was not given the responsibility of navigating us. That's also why he only ate pizza. Well, it is he also. I'm pretty sure he would only eat one thing if we took him now. So he made the amazing discovery that they don't have meatballs in uh, wherever we went. In Italy. In Italy. We went to one place, and it was an American place, and they had meatballs. And he ordered, at, he ordered meatballs at the next place, and they were like, we don't have meatballs. It's an American thing. Yep. And my brother was like, but... That became our number one way to tell a tourist restaurant from a real Italian restaurant yeah, was they if had they had meatballs, meatballs, you don't eat there. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it was kind of like the gelato thing, too. Remember they told us if the gelato is stacked really high, it's a tourist place and don't go there mm -hmm. because they, they overmake and undersell it. And so we ended up using 
a couple of the gelaterias that were by our hotels. Oh, there was one that was like 20 feet from our door of our hotel, and we went there like twice a day at one point. <laughs> you did. You had lunch dessert and dinner dessert. It was amazing. You know, it's. I wish we could get real gelato here in the States. And I know somebody listening to this is going to say somewhere in this country we can. And I would like to know where that is. Because every time we've stopped to buy it when they advertise gelato, it's... It's just ice cream with the gelato recipe. They don't actually treat it right. with gelato because no one knows how to. Yeah, I had looked up online the difference. And there really is a difference in the way it's created. And uh, it has something to do with with the temperatures and the way the ice crystals form. And that's why it can be so creamy and cold at the same time. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, I would love to find a place that really made it. I'm getting hungry just thinking about gelato. Well, it is, what, 10 o'clock? I don't know what time it is. Either way, I'm still in my pajamas. <laughs> and I don't plan on getting out of them today unless I have to leave the house. <laughs> Uh, I, it's good to have it's good to have goals in life. <laughs> well, I think that's it for this week. So I'm looking forward to next episode with Buford Winston loves his ass, where Diamond finally confronts her number one suspect. It's uh, it's of course not what she thinks it is. Oh. Of course. So what are you going to play to take us out today? Um, I played a lot of Dix's bass and a lot of Ian's and I actually completely forgot to play some of Monty's bass which was honestly not that interesting I think that's why I decided just eh, we'll skip it yeah but I think I'll do Ian's bass all right Beautiful.